Dr. Nick Delgado here with Dr. Joel Wallach. And he has an amazing story. I've known Joel for a number of years. And we're talking about chronic disease conditions that were purported to have a genetic basis. And yet, I want you to hear the full story. Joel? Okay, thank you, Dr. Nick. Um, uh, basically, the short version of it is uh, I was working at uh, Emory University, uh, Great Memorial Hospital, and the Yerkes Primate Center in Atlanta, Georgia for NASA. And um, that was after I'd done my thesis for um, this big project with the Center for um, Natural Systems at Washington University. And um, ran into serendipities, ran into um, the first, uh, what would turn out to be the first uh, non-human case of diagnosed cystic fibrosis in a little six-month-old rhesus monkey. Did all the work with uh, blood that had been um, withdrawn from the parents of 25 baby monkeys in the colony for six years, every month for six years and put in the freezer. From the 25 baby monkeys, they were about the same age as this one, six months. None of them related, got permission to do biopsies. Um, and it turns out that all 25 of them had cystic fibrosis. None of them were genetically related, so I knew immediately it was an environmental problem and not, not a, a genetic disease. And experts in cystic fibrosis had diagnosed it, had confirmed my diagnosis because I didn't tell them it was from a monkey. I just sent them slides and said, I think this is cystic fibrosis. What do you think? On the Yerkes um, letterhead. And they sent back on their letterheads, you know, from Harvard Medical School in New York uh, and so forth in London. And, and they said, uh, oh, yeah, this is classic examples of cystic fibrosis. Then I wrote them back. Remember, this is 1977. <clears throat> said, well, this is the first non-human case of cystic fibrosis. This isn't a rhesus monkey. Um, I'm going to set up a colony here. I'll keep you informed. And they were so excited. Uh, it was in the newspapers, blah, 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 blah. And then um, when I found out what actually caused by doing the analyses of the saved blood samples. They found out it was a deficiency of a single nutrient for the liver and the kidney, excuse me, the liver and the pancreatic disease. And then for the sweat test and the lung disease, positive sweat test was supposed to be the genetic marker, was a deficiency of a second nutrient. And in human beings, I could inject them intravenously and in 24 hours, our genetic marker, the positive sweat test, would go unpositive, go negative. And if I gave it to him orally, it took two weeks and it would go negative. And so I knew I had something. And, of course, they fired me and actually had cops usher me out of the, the, the laboratory and everything because they thought I was smelling glue. And, uh, of course, cystic fibrosis was supposed to be the classic example of a genetically transmitted human disease. Now here I am, 24 years old, saying that it's uh, not a genetic disease. To make a long story short, um, uh, got uh, invited to speak to the National Health Federation in Chicago in 1978. Um, and um, while I was lecturing there, uh, they had representatives from the National College of Naturopathic Medicine from Portland, Oregon, looking for staff and, and students. And uh, they came up after I had lectured and said, look, we want you to lecture um, at uh, our annual meeting for naturopathic physicians for their points for their licenses uh, for, the, for the state association. Uh, and so I accepted, and I was there lecturing. And they said, uh, Jeffrey Bland, very famous uh, guy and one of my mentors, I just was 
Uh, so I thought, oh, he's going to be there too. And he was, but he said that he has taught nutrition here at the school for 15 years and he's gonna, leaving to go start his own business. And so would you fill in for him and take the job of teaching nutrition and biochemistry? Well, yeah. And could I use all my um, courses from my um, other degrees, my veterinary degree, my pathology degree, from these um, uh, certified universities um, towards my degree in naturopathic medicine? They said yes. And they made me an advanced standing student. So I, I bought a clinic two years before I graduated. I did my own residency, my own clinic. That's another big story. Um, but uh, um, began to and realized uh, with my big project that I did with NIH for my pathology degree, the Center for the Biology of Natural Systems at Washington University in St. Louis, that, um, and this was during the 1960s, mid-1960s when I got that degree, and everybody knew the earth was going to end in two weeks from pollution, and my job, my directive was to find a species of animals that was sensitive to the same pollutants that humans were. We're going to use it as the canary in the mine in the big cities, and we put those animals in the zoos in the big cities, uh, and um, that way we'd have a canary in the mine telling us that there's a big danger in the big cities in Canada, the United States, and in Mexico, the North America. Make a long story short, I found uh, that uh, after 20,000 autopsies, 454 species, including 3,000 humans, um, not a single one had died from pollution in the big cities, and none of the zoo animals had died. There were 17,000 and some change of 454 species involved in my autopsies. Most everybody does 50 white rats and they think they're doing something. This was 454 species and 17,000 animals. In some cases, it was two of that species, or 15, or whatever it might be. And I found that there was, uh, they all died of nutritional deficiency diseases. There was no, they all had the same genetic, excuse me, they all had the same genetic birth defects in all the baby animals. And then when I would do all this analyses, all the genetic birth defects were caused by nutritional deficiencies during pregnancy, and there was no genetically transmitted birth defects. And my thesis is in the Smithsonian Institute as a national treasure because I came up with the science of epigenetics. I'm one of the fathers and founders of the science of epigenetics, and that's why my thesis is in the Smithsonian Institute as a national treasure. So I'm very, very proud of that. And uh, um, uh, Dr. Nick, that's my story. I know Jeffrey Bland has stated, along with the biology of belief, Bruce Lipton, that although we may have a genetic tendency to manifest a particular condition, we don't really manifest it unless there's elements either present or not present. So what you're purporting, as Bruce Lipton has stated, that through the intervention of potentially, and I believe Jeffrey Bland would confirm this as well, through lifestyle, through diet, through exercise, through supplementation, and I know you're a big proponent of the 90 trace minerals, we can oftentimes alter that so-called disease. Yeah. Okay, well, this is exactly why uh, I'm involved with uh, Bruce Lipton and this uh, epigenetics thing. He uses identical twins, which is a slow, deliberate process, right? Well, I, I got 100 baby ducks from the same hatching period, from the same mother-father. I got 100 baby ducks from the same pair of mallard ducks within a six-week period, kept stealing the eggs, put it in the freezer, stealing the eggs, put it in the freezer. When I got 100, I put 25 in each of four groups. Put them in the incubator at the same time. They all hatched in 21 days, all perfectly normal. The mother and father were getting the same nutrition during that same six weeks I was collecting the eggs. 
divide them into four groups of 25. Group number one got nothing but lettuce for six weeks. Group number two got hydropactic grown barley grass for six weeks. Group number three got the same pellets that the mother and father got for six weeks. Group number four got the pellets and the barley grass. Group number one was about a third of the size that normal ducklings would be because it was only being fed lettuce. They were only being fed lettuce, those 25 ducklings. So they were about a third of the size. We killed them all at six weeks. Group number two that got the uh, barley grass and we gave the seeds to white rats and fed the white rats to snakes. So we're, we're tracking pollution in that direction, plus, you know, from the fertilizers and the, and the barley grass, um, and the barley grass and the ducklings. And the ducklings getting the barley grass were 20% bigger than the ones that got just the lettuce. They were 20% by weight. And you can look at the picture, their heads are like three times as big as the ones that just got the lettuce. The ones that got the, the duck pellets were pretty much the same size that any baby duck would be being fed the pellets in, in a six weeks period. What's in the pellets? Um, vitamins and minerals and, and alfalfa and corn, I think. And so um, uh, they were three times bigger than group one or two. Same genetics, the only difference, some are boys, some are girls. Now group number four got the um, duck pellets, okay, with the um, alfalfa and the corn and the vitamins and minerals, same as mother and father in group number three. Group number four got the same duck pellets plus the barley grass. Now they're five times bigger than group number one and two and three times bigger than group number three. And I have pictures of them and that was published in scientific journals it was in the book Rare Earths Been Cures, and I use this in my lecture all around the world, and people understand epigenetics immediately. Now, what Bruce Lipton does, he takes twins, identical twins that have been separated at birth, maybe three months of age, a year of age, two years of age. One goes to New York, one goes to Dallas, Texas. They're in different homes, maybe different religions, certainly different diets, and they don't look anything alike. Now, these are identical twins. When they get together when they're 30 years old, they don't look anything alike. They might look like they might be cousins, but they don't even look like brothers. And one of them's six foot five and plays basketball, and the other one is five foot six and is a, a geek. Okay, because they were fed different things and lived in different places. Now, Bruce is very slow and methodical because he's dealing with 30 years of lifetime. I'm dealing with six weeks with my, my ducklings. And so that's why I was way ahead of him. <laughs> Joel, you're... You're certainly well known for, as I remember too, uh, the incredible talk you did, Dead, Dead Doctors Don't Lie. And it kind of motivated me to come up with the term, uh, blood doesn't lie. And as you know, for 40 years, I've been looking at blood samples of, of humans while they're alive and seeing uh, and comparing what they're eating, their supplementation, their exercise, their beliefs, the disease conditions, and the outcome of, of those individuals spanning 40 years. So you and I have a different perspective than most practitioners or doctors, and you did a great job of looking at the autopsy reports of these doctors, and many of them uh, have addictions, as we know, unfortunately. Many of them, you know, they're human. I mean, doctors, I'm not saying that they're worse or better humans than the rest of us. It's just that they have access to the latest in pharmaceutical interventions. They have their chemicals or drugs. They're trained by basically big pharma and surgical houses. So that's their belief system. And what's been the outcome of their lifespan? And you documented quite well. Okay. Well, I documented from the um, medical library at the um uh, I was in Houston, Texas, at the Texas Medical Center. I went to the library there, 
And um, I'm finding everything the doctors have been saying. Remember, I'm still a veterinarian at that point. I hadn't become a physician yet. I'm trying to figure out why on earth are doctors so far off? They're saying all these diseases are genetic, but they're really just nutritional deficiencies. And so I said, well, gosh, if they were correct, they should be healthier and live longer than anybody else if they're doing everything they're asking everybody else to do. So I went into the, the library there at the Texas Medical Center in Houston. I went and I just got armloads of, of the past, like, 10 years of the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I went through the obituaries. And I added up all the ages of 200 doctors in the obituaries and divided by 200. And I got 57.8 or something like that. So I said, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, round up to 58. And I did it again with a different bunch because I couldn't believe it was that low. Because couch potatoes lived to be 74, right? And it came out exactly the same. And so, and, and it was just like hitting me in the face of doctors really don't know what they're doing. I mean, that's when I really knew that they didn't know what they were doing. And so I started lecturing on that around the world. And doctors said, Wallach's got to be wrong. He's the guy that got fired because he said cystic fibrosis was not genetic, blah, 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 blah. And they, we did our own study. So they did their own study and they came out a year later and they said, we knew it. We knew it. Wallach was wrong. His, his number of doctors dying at 58 was completely wrong. Doctors don't die at 58 on the average. They die at 56. <laughs> and I said, you guys are very stupid. Why didn't you just leave it alone? Why did you publish showing that you'd, your, your study showed you died two years younger than I said? We wanted to show your science is not good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's fascinating, Joel, and I love how you present to audiences across the world, almost every nation in the world, stories that really bring to life the reality of of how we have a challenge to really educate people all over the world about healthy habits and nutrition and supplementation. And I know you, like Jeffrey Bland, have done a great job in educating people about nutritional deficiencies. And it's so pervasive that even over the course of 40 years that I've been looking under a high-powered microscope and analyzing people's uh, blood and seeing obvious cases of anemia, B12, uh, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, just like Jeffrey Bland has stated, not all folic acids are absorbed. Uh, in fact, types of folicine and special types, there's certain people that can't absorb the typical vitamin or mineral folic acid. So you often seek the better or natural origins to make sure that people get the right type of supplementation. I also love your story about how, uh, I believe it's Ashwood, where uh, a lot of cultures, they burn their wood and the leftover uh, mixes into the soil and provides a rich source of trace minerals and various nutrients that the human body evolved with. Well, Nick, that's one of the reasons I love and respect you, brother, because you're hitting the high points 100%. The thing that, that was very prominent to me was that there was big differences, even in the same families, um, where you have one group goes over here, and everybody in that family will get cancer. Same people in the same family, or other people in the same family, they go over there, and none of them get cancer. What's the difference? Okay, well, there's an environmental difference. What's going on? Well, it turns out 
there's two pieces. There's an old adage, you are what you eat. That's absolutely 100% not true. You are not what you eat. You are what you absorb. Okay? And so you can eat a perfect diet and take a perfect supplement program, but if your intestines, all the villi are gone, you're down to 3% absorption efficiency. I don't care how many supplements you take, you're still going to get all the diseases that are caused by these supplement or these nutritional deficiencies. And Joel, there is what's called intrinsic factor in the gut. And as we age, it sometimes becomes difficult to absorb very important nutrients such as vitamin B12. In fact, it's been estimated that some plant-based vegetarians might have over 70% incidence of deficiency of vitamin B12. And in these individuals, it's been shown they need at least 200 micrograms of vitamin B12. And it's, you know, it's well known that B12 comes from microorganisms and then animals store the B12 in their flesh. And of course, flesh has vitamin B12. But that shouldn't be a reason to discourage those who do want to be plant-based, whole food eating individuals. Just they have to understand they need to take a supplement. And just because they're saying, well, you know what, in primitive times, there might have been B12 in the water and unclean foods, you know, and microbes mixed into the plant foods and they got their B12. That, that's a nice argument and that makes sense. But, you know, we, we try and clean our foods and uh, oftentimes these microorganisms that would have provided B12 is gone. So you have to open up your mindset to understand that oftentimes vitamin B12, possibly using glandulars. You always tell the story about using cartilage, um, the end of the bones, to get some good absorption of certain calcium and nutrients. So it's one thing to eat for, oh, shall we say, religious purposes. Or, But I look at we eat to live, and those nutrients and foods, we need to get a diversity of quality, absorbable nutrients, and then the human gut has to be in a healthy state to absorb these nutrients, correct? As you take your supplements, I'll let you finish taking your supplements. You said 75 things there, so I'm going to kind of compress it and and answer it. (laughs) And so the thing you have to appreciate, one of the reasons my thesis for my postdoctoral fellowship of my 20,000 autopsies, 454 species, 3,000 humans is in the Smithsonian Institute as a national treasure, is that what my study showed, one of the main things that it showed was that all vertebrates required the same 90 essential nutrients. It didn't matter if you were a hummingbird or a giraffe or a human being or a rat or a pig or a snake or a porpoise, all, all um, vertebrates required the same 90 essential nutrients, 60, six zero minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 3 fatty acids. And the clincher was that at the same stage of pregnancy, if the female, regardless of the species, the female vertebrate, if she's deficient in the same nutrient, she's going to get the same birth defect in that baby. I don't care, again, if it's a porpoise, if it's a shark, if it's a hummingbird, a giraffe, a human being. And I'm finding all these same birth defects in all these animals in these zoo species, 454 species. Well, I started giving the 90 cents of nutrients to these zoo animals, and suddenly now they're having all perfect babies. We're talking about 20, 30 zoos. And now PETA isn't angry with zoos because they have perfect babies. Instead of them dying in two years in captivity, they live 40 years, and they maintain themselves as healthy babies, and they don't have to go into the wild populations to repopulate the zoos when they die out. So PETA isn't, doesn't have a thing against zoos anymore. 
okay? Now, if I can do that with 454 species, including human beings, it's because we came up with a simple system. Nobody puts dirt from Texas in their car, six quarts of dirt from Texas in there, and hopes there's some oil in it. An insane person would not do that. You know, if a mechanic said, look, I, I have this soil from Oklahoma and Texas. If you put six quarts of this in your car, you'll never need to put oil in there. An insane person would not do that. Say, you're out of your mind, man. I'm going to another mechanic. I'm putting six quarts of oil in my car. Well, when a doctor says, you can have three degrees. You can have a Ph.D. in biochemistry. You can have a Ph.D. in anatomy and a Ph.D. Um, in infectious diseases and have a medical degree. And a doctor says, oh, just eat while you get everything. And you say, oh, okay. And then you die from nutritional deficiency. Okay, because plants only need three elements from the soil to make good seeds for the next generation. All vertebrates require 60. So 90% of the time, you're, you're 57 short. Now, when you look at the top 20 longevity cultures, according, and I'm going to finish this up here so we can get going. Um, when you look at the um, top 20 longevity cultures, according to the um, National Geographic, 19 of the 20 are third world cultures. None of them have electricity. They have no doctors. They have no insurance. They use wood for fuel. They put their wood ashes in their gardens. Wood ashes are 99% minerals that the plant sucked up out of the ground. Now, here's the deal. Nutritional minerals do not occur in a uniform blank around the crust of the earth. They occur in veins like chocolate and chocolate ripple ice cream. Some here, some there, some here. There's gold mine over there. 2,000 miles over there. There's another gold mine. Same principle for nutritional minerals. Okay? And... These 19 cultures that live a long time just happen to, by dumb luck, live in places that have 25, 30, 40, 50 different minerals in the soil. The tree sucks them all up. Now, the tree only needed three of those minerals, but they'll suck up all 50. They throw the wood ashes in the garden. Their beans and corn and tomatoes and carrots suck up those minerals. They eat it, and they get those nutrients. They live to be 120, 140, 160. They're the longest of people. The only first world culture is in Loma Linda, California. They're the longest lived as a culture. They're the longest lived peoples on earth, other than these other 19. In the industrialized world, they are the longest lived people on earth. Okay? They're Seventh-day Adventists, and they're required by the religion to take supplements. I rest my case. Beautiful. We, of course, we, we hear the blue zones, and we know that there's a high proportion of plant-based foods centered around fresh, unprocessed fruits and vegetables and legumes and so forth. And we also notice that these cultures, the longest-lived cultures, are not using processed oils. You and I agree that these oils uh, are toxic. Uh, they can become oxidized. You had mentioned in our prior discussion before we started this interview uh, the presence of oxidized uh, byproducts. Yeah, oxidized wheat germ all cause coronary artery plaque and wild sheep from the Atlas Mountains of North Africa. Where in the hell are they getting their cholesterol? Okay, it was oxidized wheat germ oil. So we we look at the evidence, and I don't think anyone could disagree with the fact that living outdoors. Uh, gathering your food. I mean, there was probably times in rainforests where people were reaching up and pulling fruit during seasons, pulling tubers out of the ground, eating whole foods. If they had the ability, hunting down an occasional animal, if that was the poss possible case. But more importantly, I think we have to look at the latest studies are showing that 
those people who eat the highest proportion of fruits and vegetables and whole food are basically pushing out uh, processed toxic foods that really are not good for you. And so, you know, again, it it's all about understanding that philosophy and realizing that the soil's depleted. You've made a classic point about this, that even if they're getting their squash and their carrots and their, you know, to fresh tomatoes, um, I, I've done this experiment. I don't know if you buy into it, but you put these electrodes into like a carrot or tomato. And if it's grown in the United States where they only are required to supply, uh, I believe, what is it? PKC, uh, potassium, um, and, uh, the, the, the various, uh, small number of nutrients you alluded to three or four nutrients. Uh, but really, uh, plants need multiple nutrients They'll thrive, but the human, which the plant is absorbing, needs all these nutrients is what you're pointing out. And that's that's one of the keys here. But the point of the light bulb, you stick these electrodes in, the light bulb barely glimmers from the identical looking carrot or squash in the United States. When I went to Malaysia and Indonesia where the soil is so dark and rich and the rainforest, and you, you stick the electrodes into the uh, squash or a carrot, the light is so bright because of all the trace minerals. It, it's representative of the vast difference of soil quality, isn't it? Well, again, you've said 75 things there, Dr. Nick. And basically, the rainforests are depleted of nutrients. They're sterile, they're useless. But here's the deal, here's the kicker, here's the piece that you're looking at but everybody's talking about the rainforest. Rainforest, you do not want to go there and eat out of the rainforest. You will kill yourself. There's nothing there because of the rain. Rain, 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 it's all depleted, okay? What happens is, is the rivers running through the rainforest. They flood every year. When the floodwater recedes, what's it leave behind? Silt, mud, which are minerals. And that gets put back into the soil just by the natural cycle of the annual spring floods. And it's the places just on either side of the river, the floodplains near the rainforest. This is a fertile place. That's where people live the longest. They might go into the forest to get lumber or shelter, but when it comes to food, the ones who have the soil on the floodplains near the river that's coming out of the rainforest, there's where the nutrition's at. Okay? And so there's a lot of misinformation uh, that, that people have developed to support their theory. Well, I think the point you're making is well taken. Um, I'm not purporting that the rainforest itself, but you made a good point that it's, it's the runoff and the, the accumulation. It's the floodplains and the banks of the rivers. I'll give you another example. Why was it that floodplains and bottomland, people would kill, they would kill their relatives to take over bottomland farms? That's because every year it would flood, and they'd plow in the mud and the silt and renew the soil every year. A, a, a floodplain bottomland farm would last forever. Generation after generation, it never played out. You get a farm out in the prairie, in eight to ten years it'd play out, because the plants would suck all the minerals out of the soil that had been accumulating for millions of years. Never floods out there. And that was the reason for the movement west. They'd have to, when the land played out, they would move west 100 miles to a new land. And would play out, they move west again after six or eight or ten years. Because the soil would play out in the prairie. Because it wasn't flooding. 
it's the floodplains, the bottomland that were renewed every year by the new silt. Now that's why the oceans are dying. That's why the reefs are dying. And coming up, I want you to hear this, coming up in August of this year, I'm going to be speaking to the Tesla Society, not the Tesla car business, but the Tesla Society. I'm their featured speaker. Nikola Tesla. Yeah. I'm going to be their featured speaker in August of this year in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They have already printed the magazine, their magazine for that month, August. For the picture on the cover, okay, me and my monkeys, and the feature article in there because Longevity knows how to save the earth because we're going to feed the ocean, we're going to feed the, the reefs because the carbon dioxide accumulating in the environment, there's no doubt about that, is not from combustion engines and using oil to generate electricity, it's from lack of consumption. Lack of consumption of carbon dioxide. What, co what, co what consumes carbon dioxide? Plants. Okay, well in the ocean, which was the biggest biomass of plants, because it's a 3D environment where the land is just a surface. Well, the 3D environment, there is bacteria, algae, phytoplankton, all of which are plant materials, and they would eat the carbon dioxide and convert it into fiber and carbohydrates and stuff, and then they would also accumulate minerals from the ocean. And then the reef polyps, would eat the bacteria and the algae and the phytoplankton and make reefs. Well, guess what? We shut off the food supply to the ocean, and so the bacteria, the algae, and the phytoplankton are all dead. There's no food for the, for the um, uh, uh, reef polyps, and the reef polyps are starving, so that's why the reefs are dying. Have you ever heard of limestone? What do you mean? Limestone? The rock. Lime oh, yeah, heard of it, yeah. Okay. Well, limestone, are, it comes from dead reefs. Limestone is a dead reef. There's been five extinctions over since the beginning of Earth. We're in the beginnings of the sixth extinction. But myself and Longevity are going to intercept it. The sixth extinction will not occur. There will be no more new limestone. We will save the Great Barrier Reef. I will save all the other reefs. We will save the ocean. We will save humanity. And Longevity is going to get the credit. Thank you very much. Joel Wallach, you're amazing. We all love you. You have your detractors, but they're already dead. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, dead doctors don't lie. And, you know, people always say that. You know, gosh, you got so many people who don't like you and disbelieve you and call you a liar. I said, didn't they say that about Jesus? <laughs> I'm in a pretty good group there. Uh, uh, I'm not claiming to be in that level, but what I'm saying is, if they can say that about a Jesus, if they can say that about a Moses, if they can say that about a Noah... I don't feel too bad that they're saying that about me. Dr. Nick here. Be strong, be well. Stay tuned to our next podcast. I'm sure you'll be blown away about what you're going to learn about and hear about. Subscribe, share, and uh, get in touch with us. Joel Wallach, he's out there. He's uh, kind of stirring up the planet and hopefully going to save the planet. Take care. <laughs>